Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 45. We're almost to 50 now. We're going to cover Homer's Iliad, book 14, in its entirety today. And just as I suggested last time when we were discussing the end of book 13, book 14 is full of salacious and sordid details as Hera gets the better of her very wise husband as nature overtakes the forces of culture, showing the power that nature has over not only man, but God himself. Um, and so, let's begin. Nestor hears the fighting and leaves Machaon in his tent to rest. Recall that Machaon had recently been injured and Nestor in Book 11 had uh, carted Machaon off and that that had instigated Achilleus to send Patroclus to go see what was happening, knowing that if Machaon, one of the two healers, uh, sons of Asclepius, god of medicine, son himself of Apollo, uh, Podolarius, and Machaon, if one of them were injured, then surely the Achaeans were in dire straits. And recall also that Nestor made a plea to uh, Patroclus there, appealing to his father's words to him that he recalls that he be good counsel to Achilleus, who must be preeminent in battle, that Patroclus, in order to stir the Achaeans and keep their ships from burning that very night, must prevail upon Achilleus to give him his armor and to fight in his stead, which would be a major boon for the Achaeans. Uh, Patroclus, alongside Myrmidons himself, being epically powerful, um, much more powerful than any Trojan, um, and he'll certainly make a claim to that effect at some point. Or get Achilleus to fight. You're his best friend, and you're supposed to counsel him because you're older than he is and of lesser rank and strength. And so uh, let's keep that in the back of our minds, though it won't be until book 16 that that plays a bigger part. So Machaon <clears throat> is left in the tent, and Nestor goes out and sees the men in shameful flight, retreat, and confusion. And of course, he has to do something about this. So he, is, he has to decide in the division of his heart whether to rejoin the fighting, which would be of limited help given his advanced age, or going to find Agamemnon, uh, going to find the brain center and making a plan, generating a strategy in order to support the Achaeans in the way he knows best. And so he chooses option two, the latter option, to go find Agamemnon. <clears throat> And so, he meets Diomedes, Agamemnon, and Odysseus, all injured, walking towards him, leaning on spears. So this is sort of a pathetic image as well as a, a sort of uh, encouraging image, because though these men are injured and depotentiated and incapable of helping in battle, they are still rousing themselves to come out and show themselves before the troops. They're still coming to the aid of the troops in terms of morale, showing themselves not to be defeated in spirit, simply to be injured in body. And so um, this is a good sign for the Enchians and uh, representative of their current state. State, though they are injured in body, they are not injured in spirit. And uh, so uh, th this seems to support the idea uh, of what Puladama said to Hector earlier that um, he, when he interpreted the sign of the snake being dropped by the eagle, that <clears throat> though the Achaeans might be grievously injured by this attack, uh, they, will, they will bounce back from it, and they will be just as strong and even angrier in their response, and certainly their response will be angry. And so, Agamemnon now shows in open, open assembly that he fears the Achaeans will no longer fight for him due to anger about Achilleus, which is a legitimate concern on his part, though, again, showing his, his uh, inability to keep from becoming discouraged and uh, to jump to uh, um, a dire solution 
to a problem that can, could potentially be solved in a simpler way. And so after Nestor reports that the wall is broken and the troops are in disarray and confusion, Agamemnon for the second time, third time if you consider him, his, uh, his, his time speaking in jest in book two, he suggests that the Achaeans flee. And this time rather than Diomedes speaking up, it's Odysseus, which is even worse in councils given that Odysseus is only beneath West uh, Nestor in terms of wisdom. And so he says, Now I utterly despise your heart for the thing you have spoken. While, and while we do pull out our ships, the Trojans would destroy us, he says, between 1484 uh, to 103. Basically, Odysseus says, um, So while we retreat, who would exactly be defending us? Who would be staying on the beach, um, not retreating, uh, sacrificing themselves for us? Nobody would be the answer. And so not only would we retreat in confusion and cowardice, which would be a terrible ending to the story, but we would get killed while we did it. So it would be cowardly and stupid. Uh, in order to do this plan, and of course, Odysseus is representative of um, of of ability and the ability to adapt to situations um, in the best possible way. Would of course hate the worst possible plan, which would result in loss of uh, legendary status as well as loss of life. Um, you can't, you just can't lose both of those in a situation. Ideally, you gain both, and so Diomedes then. Or rather, Agamemnon admits that it's not the best idea he's had, and Diomedes, young as he is, suggests they return to the fighting. Poseidon then appears to Agamemnon as an old man and says that Achilleus is pitiless, and the gods are not angry with you, Agamemnon. You will see Troy fall. And he lets out a yell of nine to 10,000 voices, which plants great strength into the Achaeans. And basically what this means is that he gives sort of divine assurance to Agamemnon in, in place of Zeus. In terms of a, a ruling god, he gives encouragement back to the heart of Agamemnon, which then spreads throughout the army. Uh, nine to 10,000 voices, enough to reach nine to 10,000 people, essentially. And we saw that nine to 10,000 number uh, earlier in book five, um, with Ares screaming out in pain after Diomedes struck him. Um, and so, so. Agamemnon essentially needs divine assurance that the prophecies that he would someday defeat the Trojans are still true. He has to uh, have his faith in the plan restored. And in having his faith in the plan restored, the men around him have their faith restored. And so Poseidon, though not actively fighting on the battlefield, is doing something potentially even more important. Uh, and you can see there what compliment he offers to Athena and Hera, whereas Hera and Athena are often invoking strategic help to the Achaeans and uh, often and sometimes even guiding their weapons in the case of Athena and Diomedes in book five. Um, Poseidon restores faith to the, the leader and to the people. And you might say that that is the, uh, one of the functions of the figurehead aspect of any leader, especially a symbolic leader like a king, to restore faith um, that uh, what is being aimed at what is being hoped for can be achieved. And so Poseidon, in conjunction with Agamemnon against Hector and the will of Zeus, though not actively being portrayed, because of course he's turned his eyes from this boring little Trojan War for the moment. Um, well, this is good news for the Achaeans. So Hera sees this 
and she is happy with what Poseidon is doing. And then she juxtaposes her happiness with Poseidon, who's doing exactly what she hopes he would, and potentially even thinking about what a fine husband he might have been. <laughs> she then looks at Zeus, and he appears hateful to her, as he is an object against her desire right now, or rather, rather than being a tool to, to implementing her will in reality on the world like uh, Poseidon is that makes her happy um, Zeus is pre presenting himself as an obstacle to her will and thus is hateful to her and so she decides that Zeus needs to be dealt with and so that she must beguile the brain of Zeus by means of loveliness and so no amount of mental cunning or strength will keep Zeus from being subjected to the will of his wife by means of her loveliness. This will be the force of nature, effectively, that which is unconscious and powerful beyond belief, like the sea, or the impetus for a chick to escape an egg, or a blossoming plant to jump and spring forth from the ground, or a rose finally to unfurl its beautiful petals. Hera will bring Zeus to his knees by means of her arts. Not only her art to deceive by means of words, but to deceive by means of her loveliness as well. And so one might well imagine that Homer here is making some statement on the eternal relationship between the feminine and the masculine and the way in which the feminine beguiles the masculine into life in the form of the mother first, but then also in beguiling the man into becoming father too in the second half of life. And so woman brings man into the next stages of his life for each stage of his life. And as a teacher of high schoolers, knowing that they have recently themselves <clears throat> entered the next major stage of their lives, I will empathize with them, recalling myself moving into adolescence and having that period of life marked by the presence of new feelings for the young ladies who were then in my presence, who, who then cultivated my behavior to become moral and far more excellent than it had been, though far short of true excellence, or excellence in any use of the word. Um, and it's very interesting then to see the interplay between that which is masculine and feminine played out not only in nature but within the context of the gods. As if that which led to the progress of human society was always the interplay between which, which gender or which principle then gained Primacy uh, from one moment to the other. Eros, relationship, feminine, natural, yang, or masculine, logos, yin, active, represented by light in the yin-yang. And so here the light will succumb to the darkness in terms of Zeus, weighty and wise as his mind is, will here be overmastered by his, his wife's wiles and her ability 
to call to something even deeper within him. And so, she will deceive Zeus, and she will lie with Zeus and drift an innocent, warm sleep across his eyelids. But first, she beautifies herself for a solid 25 lines, lines 161 to 186, and then she goes off to Aphrodite. And wisely enough, because we recall that Aphrodite is one of the three gods on the side of the Trojans, not on the side of the Achaeans as Hera is, Hera first asks whether Aphrodite holds her forever in hate in her heart. Because Hera finds herself on this other side of this middling little conflict amongst mortals and mortals, they live for such a short time. Really not worth getting worked up about at all. And Aphrodite says, no, of course not. I hold nothing against you, mother of the gods, Hera. Uh, ask anything of me. Very civil, these two are to each other. And she says, as long as I can grant your request, please ask. And so Hera asks for a very particular um, item from Aphrodite. It is called the Zone of the Graces. Sometimes translated as a belt, but I read recently that it's better uh, understood as a garter, either to be put on the leg or the arm. And this garter, this binding of grace to one, supplants one's motions with beauty, which is, of course, what grace is. Grace is to apply beauty to motion and to make harmony of one's movements. And so Grace assures Hera that she will be irresistible to any who sees her. In particular, this will be useful for Zeus. But first, Hera has got to tell Aphrodite why it is that she needs this zone. Because if she just says blandly, I need it in order to uh, uh, cast sleep uh, upon Zeus so that I can uh, help to further the destruction of the Trojans whom you love and have a son fighting for uh, Aphrodite. You might imagine that Aphrodite would say, go straight down to uh, your brother, my uncle Hades, <clears throat> and spend some time there staring at Tartarus, which is even further below. Supposedly just as far below Earth as Hades is, so is Tartarus below Hades. And so just as far as the gods are above Earth, it seems, so are the gods in Tartarus below. Hmm. And so Hera comes up with a clever lie, and a very and a lie very much believable in, in terms of the fact that it's very particular to her. So the in Homer here, and this is a small change, rather than the two primordial gods who brought about the Titans being Uranus. Heaven and Gaia, also known as Gay, uh, Earth. They are here, Okeanos, Ocean, the river ocean, which surrounds all the flat disk of the Earth, and Tethys. And, and the lie is that these father and mother of the gods have been for some time now estranged from the marriage bed. And so Hera, herself being goddess of marriage, is going to spice things up between them and to bring harmony back into their domestic situation, which will be a major theme in the Odyssey. No harmony at home, death. Harmony at home, best thing possible. 
which, well, it's hard to imagine anything better than that. And so Aphrodite hears this noble desire of Hera and also potentially thinking that this would remove Hera from the situation at Troy for some time, which would be a devastating blow to the Achaeans given Hera's strategic mind and mother's desire for them to win, which is so powerful. <clears throat> I should say mother-like desire for them to win. When Hera wants to be on your side, she, she applies all her trickery and cunning to the execution of her and your will. And, well, this will be a perfect example of that. So Aphrodite blandly and blithely agrees to give the zone. Take this, and I think whatever is in your heart be accomplished. Line 221. And so, <clears throat> Hera's not done yet, though, because the other part of her plan was Zeus has to fall asleep, and, well, <clears throat> he's a very active-minded individual. And so, there's no guarantee that he will fall asleep post-coitally. And so, what does he, where does Hera go? Well, she goes to enlist the help of the minor god Hypnos, from which we get the word hypnotize. Uh, sleep, brother to Morpheus, shaper of dreams. <clears throat> and so, or rather, yes, and Thanatos is, uh, completes that trinity. Or excuse me, I meant to say that Morpheus is the son of Hypnos, though Hypnos' sleep is the twin brother to death, because so alike does man seem while both sleeping and dead. And in fact, we still, to this day in our language of English, <clears throat> use expressions uh, about death um, uh, with likening it to sleep. Um, she's, she's gone to her eternal resting place, so her requiescat in in Pake, which we translate as let him rest in peace, or in which we say rest in peace in the imperative, showing our American English spirit. And so, <clears throat> Hera goes to sleep, um, and <laughs> funnily put, and uh, phrasing, as Archer's fans would uh, say, and um, Archer fans, excuse me, and um, this will be something that Hera in the form of Juno in the Aeneid does at the very beginning of the Aeneid, which I'm teaching through right now. Um, <clears throat> in book one, the very first thing Juno will do, showing her great ira, her great anger, her irateness, her iracity, to coin a word, uh, she, will, she will go to the god of winds, Aeolus, and uh, offer, offer him precisely what she will here offer sleep uh, when she ups her offer. Uh, you might say. And so uh, this will be something to look out for as we go through all these great books together. Um, and so she offers first sleep a throne and a footstool made by Hephaestus. Wonderful gifts to offer. Anything made by Hephaestus is of top quality, even to the gods. Um, and a throne and a footstool are highly symbolic, indicating high status and an elevated place in the eye of Hera, nature. But sleep declines <laughs> because Hera has made this request of him before and he did fulfill it and uh, what what she did as he fulfilled it him blithely or 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 willfully being ignorant of what Hera might want to do while while asleep puts Zeus to sleep uh, nothing good one can be sure well Hera used that opportunity to blow Heracles, Zeus's favorite son, his ship from co or two coasts, 
and uh, from where it was supposed to land. And well, <clears throat> Zeus, when he woke up, beat up all the gods, and sleep had to flee into Mother Night, whom even Zeus will not attempt to attack. Nyx, Night, herself being amongst the most primordial, amongst the first of gods. And so, beyond even the power of ordering Zeus. Hmm. And we must remember here that night, <clears throat> in those Greek times without large cities polluting the air with their light, <clears throat> would have been filled with stars in the sky. And so the night represented something infinite beyond imagination, present immediately to one's vision. And so even Zeus cannot bind the entirety of the night sky, though many are the constellations within it. <clears throat> and so Hera then ups the ante. She really needs Zeus to go to sleep. So now she offers something, again, particular to Hera, a marriage, a marriage of a grace named Pasithea. And sleep is very much quick to accept her offer here. And he has Hera swear on the river Styx, which is the holiest of oaths between the gods. And if a god is found not to keep his or her oath to the river, then akin to being dead, a god must remain immobile for a year, and one can only imagine with the god's movements as quick as thought how long and hellish it must be for a god to remain immobile for an entire year, how much time that would feel like to a human. It's perhaps unimaginable if just as fast as the gods move, which is as quick as thought, so do they think, which would be even faster. And so, sleep then turns into a bird and goes to hide in a pine tree. So, Hera's got her plan set. She has the zone of the graces in order to make herself irresistible. She has an alibi to give to Zeus when she sees him to say why she's leaving, going to see Okeanos and Tethys. Um, she has sleep in position for after she lays with Zeus in order to ensure that he sleeps so that Poseidon can continue to help the Achaeans. Now, all she has to do is execute. And so, this will actually be a little bit harder than you might expect. Because Zeus is apparently uh, not so good with the courting in terms of words, which is a bit surprising, given how much practice he's had. And so, Hera approaches Zeus on Mount Ida and says, Oh, honey, I'm going to go see Okeanos and Tethys. And... Um, so I'm going to be gone for some time. And Zeus says, no, no, you don't, you don't really need to go. That's not so much a big deal. You, you may need to stay here with your husband for a bit. And Hera, oh, what my. And so Zeus then attempts to, to sweet talk. And this is always a fun bit to teach, uh, especially to high school students, because he brings up seven former lovers with whom he, each, each of whom had children from him. Uh, uh, so, and they're all excellent children, too. Uh, three gods uh, and, and four, I believe, heroes. So he first describes, oh, I'm, I'm so inflamed with love for you, even more than any of these seven women. 
whom I cheated on you with. And so the wife of Ixion, we don't even get her name. He had Parathos with, who was a hero left in Hades during an adventure trying to steal Persephone from him. Accidentally ate food down there. Theseus was not so foolish and did escape. Danaea, famous mother to Perseus, who with the weapon of culture and art reflected Mother Nature and Medusa and cut off her head to release the imagination, Pegasus, who would then by his hoof start a stream on Mount Helicon from which the muses or our arts would come into existence. And so Perseus is the hero of culture. Oiropa, from whom Europe gets its great name, uh, had Minos and Radamanthus, famous for justice and for being a great king, Minos, the archetypal king of Thebes, or excuse me, of Crete, not of Thebes. Um, Creon and Oedipus would famously be kings of Thebes. <clears throat> but Crete, where Idomeneus is from currently, and Radamanthus finds himself as judge in Virgil's Aeneid, as well as uh, will Minos find himself in Dante's Inferno with a coiled snake tail sending varied souls to differing circles of hell, of which there are nine, though there are ten bulges and eight and four subcircles and nine and three and seven. And so sometimes big things are made up of very many small things, like a state made of people and a federation made of states. And so also simile with whom Zeus had Dionysus, the god, the dying and being reborn god of wine. Alcmene, with whom Heracles, first called Alcides, was born. Um, something about Heracles to note, if you've only ever seen the Disney movie about him, is that his father, well, Heracles is himself a twin with Iphicles, who was Iphicles by birth though Heracles was only called Heracles after a string of deeds he did before his twelve major labors, of which they were first called ten, but three and five were not accepted. It may have been two and five. I'll confirm that for you by looking through Apollodorus later. And so you should know also that Heracles' father, Amphitryon, was himself a great conqueror and rover, and so it makes great sense that his son would be the person that he was. And so Demeter is also mentioned, and she had Persephone, who becomes queen of the underworld after being abducted uh, by Hades while she's picking flowers amongst other young ladies, and is often associated with uh, the uh, ritualistic change from maidenhood to wifehood by a young woman, and how quickly that can happen, um, <clears throat> and is perhaps meaningfully uh, done by a river. And so also Leto, who has a child, well, two children, two beautiful ones, the sun and the moon, Apollo and Artemis, Selena, Cynthia, uh, the Barisynthian one sometimes called, um, <clears throat> both of bows, um, Apollo of the silver bow and um, Artemis of the bows, the bow that, she, that shoots women dead at childbirth, and also of um, 
of those who die at night. And so she's also represented by Hecuba, the goddess of witches, and sort of the part of nature that is not understood by man but still has an effect on those. So the admixture, and still has an effect on man and on culture. And so the admixture of um, nature and the effective or the admixture of the symbol of the unknown with woman equals witch, which can do beguiling and strange things to a person that he may not understand. And so this, this scene as a whole could be seen as a representative of that. So Zeus, without understanding how it is, will feel the pings of attraction within himself will be incapable of resisting it. Um, though, and though his wife consciously uses these forces, it is unclear that she entirely understands the mechanisms by which they are employed as well, suggesting that nature may be even inscrutable to itself and uh, that which represents uh, consciousness or society. Um, as if there's an element to the unknown that, that plays on all of our lives that even the gods cannot know is a beautiful image. And so Hera then says, well, I utterly refuse to risk being humiliated by being seen by any of the gods out here. So come to my house behind which my doors, which cannot be seen through, we will close. And Zeus says, nah, baby. I've got this really cool golden cloud and I'll just pull it about us. And in fact, as he does, clover and ivy starts to sprout beneath the king and the queen of the gods. And so, after that, sleep puts Zeus immediately to sleep and then reports his efforts to Poseidon, who is still disguised as an old man. Poseidon fills the Achaeans with valor and says to attack Hector head on. Odysseus, Diomedes, and Agamemnon then all arm, though they are wounded, which is a major positive symbol for the Achaeans. The Trojans and Argives then clash together in a war, lines 390 to 401. And so we have Hector versus Aias the Greater, part two. Hector casts his spear at Aias, hits Aias in the sword strap, which is in an X over his shield strap, to no effect, which is a, um, that's a major bummer for Hector because Aias doesn't wear armor over his chest. He only has a shield and a sword strap which form an X right over his chest, sort of like the X from X-Men. So it's only covering uh, a, a few square inches going across each side. So the f there's much more exposed skin than there is unexposed skin for Hector to have hit. So that's, that's a real bummer for him to have missed in that sort of way. And so he then attempts to retreat, but Aias heaves a stone, and we all know that it's the sort of stone that the sort of men of the age of Homer, uh, even two of them could barely have picked it up, and so Aias threw it hard enough to hit Hector in the chest, and in fact run the collarbone, and Hector staggers in a circle, obviously concussed, and, and, and later actually we'll hear that he's, he's vomiting blood, and that will be the first thing actually that Zeus wakes up and sees in book 15, which will... Well, you can only imagine how that will affect his temper after having woken up and immediately seen that his will has been controverted and that he's been clearly tricked by his wife who's right there. Well, he's going to be none too pleased. And so, Aeneas... 
Puladamus, Agonor, Sarpedon, Glaucos, all the best of the Trojans, all the A-team, all recognizing the direness of this situation, form around Hector and defend him. Hector is then brought across the river Xanthos, called Scamandros by mortals. He vomits, and he's, but he's still grievously injured. And so Aias the Greater continues to maintain the upper hand on Hector, but he has not killed him. We then get a running list of Achaeans and Trojans who get killed. Aias the Lesser kills Satnius. Puladamus of the Trojans kills Protheonor um, uh, and brags about it. Uh, Aias the Greater tries to kill Puladamus in response, but instead, instead kills Archilochus, one of the sons of Antenor. Aias uh, claims it's a fair exchange, though, which has got to be an interesting thing to hear. On the one hand, you're happy to be alive. On the other hand, you're sad that your friend or this other person who wasn't aimed for was killed. Uh, and on the other hand, too, it's sort of insulting to hear that this person was just as good as you were and will do, unless you have truly egalitarian sentiments, which I suppose you should. Um, <clears throat> Penelaus then brutally kills Ilionius, knocks his eyeball out, then cuts off his head and displays it to the Trojans, lines 488 to 605 or so. That's a rather large bit of text. Um, 508, we get another invocation to the muse, and then Aias the Lesser, we find out, gets the most kills due to the speed of his feet. And thus we find out, like in all things, speed is, um, speed is one of the greatest and um, most providential qualities there can be. The fine can ships move as fast as thought. In fact, the, uh, the gods move as fast as thought. So speed and uh, swift-footed Achilles is called swift-footed Achilles, Achilles. And so speed, speed, speed. Very, very important. And so because of the speed of Aias's feet, uh, uh, he gets the most kills. And so the faster you are, the more you get done in life. And so this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 45, lecture on book 14 and the disobedience of the wily Hera. Next time we'll talk about book 15 and, well, the big guy Zeus is going to be rather upset. And so get ready for that. Until next time.